Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. My next guest, Dominic Longo, is an executive coach, facilitator of transformation, and leadership development expert. I came across his work as the founder and managing director of Flourishing Gaze, which offers executive coaching and leadership development from the LGBTQ perspective. Dominic personally identifies as a leader, as a gay man, and as an Italian-American. The core of his work is the Hero's Journey program, which offers a peer community and coaching program for highly accomplished gay, bisexual, queer, and trans men who are ready to own their superpowers and move into holistic thriving and flourishing. I get such a charge out of seeing and knowing gay men who hold space for other men to thrive, so I immediately knew I wanted to have him join our conversation. Now, even if you aren't a queer man, this conversation is for you. I encourage you to keep listening with the lens of what is gained from hearing a differing or new perspective. There's a lot more to learn about this man, so let's get him into the conversation and hear what he's all about. Welcome to the New Masculine, Dominic. Thanks, Travis. Delighted to be here. It's so wonderful to have you. Is there anything else that we should know about you before we jump into the meat of this conversation? Um, no, I think those are those are some good good entry points. Yeah, I, I put you know you asked about my mm, ways of identifying, especially you know the the masculine parts of me and Italian American seemed especially pertinent. And not, I don't always introduce myself that way, but I guess I would underline that that seems. Uh, especially relevant for this conversation. And why does it feel relevant for this conversation? Well, as I reflected on masculinities, I, I guess the kind of working understanding that I have is that it's something about molds, uh, you know, societal molds or cultural molds that are built around male bodies. And I'm both an American. I grew up in Nebraska, uh, you know, in whatever, the late 20th century and now living in New York City. And although I have other ethnicities, my uh, my dad's side of the family is Italian from Sicily. And so that those cultural uh, aspects just uh, heavily influence, I think, what as well as a historical, which kind of everyone alive, you know, right now is in a way sharing, but uh, the societal and cultural parts really sh- shape gender. 
including uh, masculine uh, ways of showing up in the world. Mm, yeah, for sure. Well, I'm really curious to find out more about how your cultural upbringing has shaped the way that you view masculinity. So let's kick it off by finding out what are some of the stories that come to mind for you when you think about what you learned it was to be a man growing up as a little boy? Yeah. Well, as you ask that question, I I want to re- recognize that, um, at least from my way of seeing, most of what gender is, most of what our, our, you know, masculinity is the way I, you know, acted out in the world. I don't think we see, I don't think we have access to, I think it's an unseen so much of the time. So, you know, yes, I have some, some stories that I, I, I'm happy to share, but I also recognize it so much is like behind the curtain. Uh, uh, and we're so subject to it. We don't, we are not able to see it because we're seeing through it. You know what I mean? Um, but one story, um, I actually recently wrote about my grandfather uh, long ago, you know, my, my Sicilian uh, grandfather uh, standing in front of the mirror, uh, preening in the morning, kind of for hours, it always seemed, you know, and, and he would stand there naked and kind of getting every hair in place or, you know, removing hairs in certain places and had all of these kind of products kind of of the 1950s or 1960s that, you know, like, I don't know, the, the bream, what was it, bream, the sort of, you know, kind of blue liquid that he would soak his combs in. And then he had like, you know, the sort of green aftershave whose name is escaping me right now, like all of these potions and, and, and so on. And he would finally kind of make his way downstairs. And, and my grandmother would say, there he is, Bo Brummel. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and he would make this self-deprecating joke about himself. Uh, look, you know, he dressed in a suit every day to go to work as a physician. And he would say, yep, here I am, the high-class pimp. You know, and uh, there's something about his, you know, performance of a kind of of, of manhood that I noted that seemed different from maybe other, you know, more white men in my world uh, in the suburbs of Omaha, uh, that, you know, what is the import of that? I don't know exactly, but I, I can tell you that it's powerful and it's important on me. I, I'm not a preener myself. I, I, I'm lucky if I look at the mirror kind of on the way out the door. Uh, but yeah, there's something about really attending to uh, to appearance and to the body and even prettifying. I mean, he was a very, you know, in the way straight, although sensual uh, man. Yeah, this is a story that does feel potent for me. Yeah, that's really interesting because it does feel different to me also than what, maybe what I grew up with or what many men I hear tell the story about. There's actually oftentimes until maybe like the late 90s, early 2000s, when the, the metrosexual thing came about, came aboard, like there was, there's actually very little put into uh, pruning and making ourselves look nice and, and our physical yeah. appearance in that way. And I think that has changed over time. And I think that there are ways in which our like body images have changed for men and our, our ideals around what bot- men need to look like and how need to, they need to care for themselves. But that is interesting that you had that even so at such a young age, you were seeing that kind of man that was really interested in perfecting the physical appearance portion. Yes. I'm glad you said metrosexual, because I would never have thought about that in regards to my grandfather, who was born in like 1913. 
but yeah, there's something along those lines. I mean, that that does sort of fit. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> Trendsetter over here. Um, what other stories come to your mind when you think about how you were shaped as a boy to become a man in this world? Yeah, just without reflecting too hard, I guess, uh, sports come to mind. You know, uh, just for me, it was uh, soccer. Uh, that was the main sport from the time I was about five years old, uh, you know, playing in a you know league with other boys, you know, I, I grew up in a very Catholic um, milieu, you know, like Catholic schools. And so the Catholic schools, soccer league, and, you know, the boys had their teams and the girls had their teams. Um, and the coaches were always somebody's dads, you know, and, you know, among other things, I mean, those were maybe those same dads were our Cub Scout leaders, you know, uh, wearing a different kind of uniform and doing a different kind of ritual that had a very different gendering than Girl Scouts, which my sister was in. Um, and again, these are the kinds of things that like we didn't look at. We just looked, of course, it's the most natural thing in the world that scouting should be gendered uh, or, or soccer uh, for, you know, eight-year-olds or whatever. What is the import of that? What is the influence or impact on on me as a man of those um, sort of gender tracks that I was so you know put into and yet presented as if they were the most natural thing? I don't know exactly, but uh, it seems again potent. Yeah, I'm glad that you're bringing these kind of concepts up because I think so much of what we teach children is absorbed just because that's what's normal. It's not like we're pointing out this always necessarily like you have to do this or you can't do this as a boy. But there are so many places where there, there are things that are unspoken that are just part of the, the experience that we put, that we funnel children into that shapes the way they see themselves, the way they see people of other genders, the way they see their relationship to what is possible for them and what's possible for others. Um, and so I think there's something really important that it's not always necessarily uh, explicitly taught, but there's so much of our the ways that we're raised in and the, and the, the experiences that we go through that do, that do tell us what is possible and what isn't possible for us. Yes. You mentioned also being raised in, in the Catholic Church. Has that had any shaping of you in terms of what it is to be a man? Like, do you, do you see that as, a, as an important way that you learned about masculinity or manhood? Yes, and, and everything else. I mean, uh, you know, I really was in a, a, a sort of Catholic subculture, you know, um, not a minority in Omaha. I mean, in a sense, you know, like around half of the city seemed to be about the Catholic world. And, and so that was just the world, you know, for me, uh, in those, in those years. And I mean, there's things like, of course, the, uh, priesthood, uh, which is only open to men and then in the, the Catholic church and the gendering of, of those, that, of that particular kind of sacramental leadership, uh, and pastoral role, and even altar boys, you know, the sort of, ritual assistance of uh, uh, the liturgies uh it was a change in my childhood in the 80s when girls could also do that and be 
on the altar, you know, in this cute kind of white outfit that we would wear and hold the, you know, hold the prayer book uh, for the priest. Um, so there was a breaking down of a particular, of that particular gender role uh, or, or gender track. I mean, the, again, the soccer, the soccer team at eight years old or 10 years old could have very easily been mixed as well without any, you know, <laughs> Kind of physical, real difference. The girls might have been better uh, because they're more developed in some uh. ways than a ten-year-old. But um, you know, part of that story, Travis, is that my my parents divorced when they were when I was three. I mean, they were mm, around thirty, and so my mom, as a as a as a Catholic single woman, you know, would, it, would, in the church that doesn't really recognize divorce. Um, had to really kind of scrape for her own uh, sense of agency and and dignity and power. Um, she also, you know, didn't have uh, uh, even uh, she had finished high school and 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 that was it. And then married my dad and sort of supported him as he finished college. So she was kind of putting back together a, a track for herself uh, as a, a you know she eventually went to business school and then law school and became a, a lawyer. So this natural feminism is what I might call it. You know, I, I, it wasn't so obvious to me that uh, women were powerful and leaders and, and, and intelligent and could make decisions and know a lot of things and be wise. I mean, because that was my experience of parenthood. My dad, you know, well, had very few of those things in you know, most of his his life. So um, that was, you know, I, I don't think we can really have a conversation about masculinities without uh, recognizing, um, first of all, uh, femininities, and uh, second, you know, the sort of patriarchal and misogynist systems that sort of overlay uh, both of these uh, gender roles. Yeah, I absolutely think it's really important that we recognize um, all ends of the spectrum and and the systems like our patriarchal system that shape the ways that we view men and women, masculinity and femininity, which is better, which is worse, because we do seem to have some level of hierarchy that in often what I find in my conversations with men is, is that most of us integrate that it's better to be masculine. Mm -hmm. That you don't want to be feminine, that's weakness, that's less than, that's subservient, that's beta. You want to be alpha, you want to be bigger. And so it's an interesting way that we shape uh, boys in this world, well, and boys and girls, and people of all different genders, where there's an assumption that whether it is explicitly said or not, there are some assumptions that are made oftentimes for many of us that it is better to be masculine and to lean more towards appearing like these stories of what a man is um but i love that you and i actually share i have uh, my parents didn't get divorced my parents are still together but i have a pretty strong mother that instilled a pretty strong feminist ideal within myself or, or, or in me around i've always viewed women as often more capable <laughs> than men and having more skill sets because of what i saw from my mother in her intelligence in her emotional awareness and her ability to sort of take the lead in our family at times. Um, I often saw that. And so it, it's sort of strange to then see that not everybody got that perspective and that other and that there is this sort of more misogynistic culture that we belong to that doesn't value what women have to bring. 
to the table. Yes. Yes, I think in my growing up, uh, sexism would have been the word I would have known and used to recognize this diminishment of girls and women and femininity and feminine powers, you know, like emotional awareness and sensitivity, uh, uh, the ability to strike up connections with other people uh, would have in some ways, you know, been feminized. And yeah, because of being raised by my my mother, you know, powerful as she was in the ways I was kind of describing, I saw patriarchy, misogyny, you know, sexism as bad, as mm -hmm. problematic, as actually diminishing in the end both men and women. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I didn't bear this sort of uh, value or belief that boys or men are better, but rather the I, I bore the belief that. The system, the sexist system that holds that is, uh, is a problem and is, a, is an obstacle, is an opponent even. So because that's how it was for my mother as she sort of made her way as a single mother, as a, a, a lawyer, as a professional, uh, as a single parent. So I, I was, you know, I, I, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm gay and, and yet I... I fit in naturally uh, and easily to the sort of normative ways of being a boy. You know, I'm, I'm athletic, I'm whatever, loud, uh, uh, you know, I, I, um, I'm not uh, shrinking, uh, you know, as a, as a personality. And so there, I didn't have those kinds of challenges that a lot of, uh, of gay men had in their, in their boyhood. Or, you know, one of my closest friends, actually, from high school and college is is a straight man. I mean, he, he, he falls in love only with women and is sexually interested only in women and yet more effeminate than I am or was. Or, you know, he, that's just how, how he does him. So I didn't get the kind of flack that a lot of, 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 of gay boys uh, get from the world. Um, and, you know, I felt I felt queer. In other ways, you know, for having a single parent, uh, for being a bookworm, uh, for having a, a, pro a, a dad who had his own problems. So it felt, yeah, strange, queer, you know, weird, uh, not normal in those ways. And, and that and I don't want to diminish the burden that, that that difference felt like back then. But I didn't know myself to be a gay kid. I wasn't a gay kid. I was a you know, kid like every other boy in so many ways. And were there, was there a point in your life where you did start to recognize that you were a gay boy and that that meant something different? Or were you, did, was that a pretty seamless transition for you? I would say I was never, um, a, I wasn't a boy anymore by that time. Mm -hmm. You know, it really wasn't in my childhood. You know, in the, in my, let's say, adolescent years, I was as, you know, befuddled and confused and experimenting and discovering as everybody else about their bodies and others' bodies and you know, sexual energies. And I, you know, we all just try to figure it out. Right. And, and, uh, I was, so that's how my, 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 my boyhood was by the time I went off to college there, I had some interest in exploring, you know, like my, uh, I, I recognized that I had, Oh, I have some sexual interest in other guys. And I wonder what that's about. And I was sort of getting a little distance between me and the taboos 
that I grew up in, again, where the most natural thing in the world that everyone expected is, of course, you're going to marry a, a girl and you're going to have kids and you're going to live in a, you know, that was just what people do. Um, so as I got a little distance from that, I, I sort of made a secret pledge to explore that side of me that was interested uh, erotically in other guys. But then I went to a, a, a Catholic university that uh, in, in many ways was just as heteronormative as uh, the, the community in which I had been raised. And so I really almost had no, uh, or found no, created no opportunity uh, for that exploration until I made another departure, a further departure to Cairo, Egypt, uh, you know, a, a world away, a totally different culture. And this is part of why I'm so aware of how culturally situated gender is and, and sexuality is because at 22, I moved to, you know, the heart of the Arab world. Not that it's all of this, you know, so uh, enlightened place for, 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 for gays or for sex, but it was different. It was extremely different. It is extremely different. And so in the different ways that gender roles played out there, the different ways that men are men in Egypt and that women are women. I, I had, in a sense, a greater agency in being myself in different ways. So it was ultimately there that I, I, I fell for another American who was a, a U.S. Marine at the time and uh, met, you know, at my church, who became, in a way, my first boyfriend. And um, so there was still some working out to do after that in my own sense of identity. But that was at age 24. I'd love to hear more about your experience in Egypt and sort of finding yourself there and allowing yourself to experiment. It's, I gotta say, it sort of surprises me as a gay person to feel that that's the place where you start to um, find yourself and explore who you are as a gay man in this world. That's probably one of the places in the world where I would have assumed, and I might have made an improper assumption, that it wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have felt safe to explore my identity as a gay man there. So I'd love to hear more about your experience. Sure. Well, part of the draw to Egypt for me personally was that it's part of the Mediterranean region, you know, and Sicily, my ancestral homeland, let's say on my dad's side, is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. As it played out, a lot of the ways that men are men in in Egypt, particularly in Arab society more broadly, were very familiar to me as an Italian American. We touch each other. We we kiss each other, hello and goodbye. We hug very genuinely, not uh, defendedly or kind of like you know a, 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 a bro chest bumping kind of. <laughs> Where your crotches like, are as far apart as possible, <laughs> but you're touched at the shoulders only. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, you know, there's a, also a real uh, emotional aliveness in mm. the Egyptian society for men, from tears uh, to um, tenderness to uh, an aesthetic appreciation for what's beautiful or delicious. Well, this was all very normal and familiar from my family culture, even if, again, it, it was not the norm of the sort of you know, white men in my, you know, they were my soccer coaches or whatever. But my uncles, my cousins, my grandfather, my, you know, my dad. Let me also say, 
Egypt is a homosocial society. Arab, the Arab world is a homosocial society. Men hang out with men. Girls, women hang out with women. You know, the cafe is one institution, a male institution, where men play backgammon, drink tea, smoke nargila or shisha, and, and, and spend hours together every evening. Whereas, you know, in, in here in New York City, where I live, yeah, I mean, typically you go out with your girlfriend or you have a couple couples go together and spend the evening together. It's not, uh, it's not part of me. Of course, we have male, male boys night out, but it's, it's the exception or girls night out. It's, it's the exception. So all of those were just some examples of how different gender plays out in contemporary Egyptian society that, like I say, gave me some space to be in my body this male body uh, in, in, and with my gender performance in ways that felt like me um, and to kind of invent myself in, in, in Arab society was part of my own unrolling or unfurling of, of my identity, myself in, in all kinds of ways. I'm so grateful you're sharing this. I think in some ways, especially as Americans, we get we lose all of the nuance of the Arab world <laughs> in our cultural conversations, at least at this point in our evolution as a country and as a, in our engagement in the world, that we lose all the nuance of of the beauty element of it and the and and the freedom it gave you to find yourself and the, and the, and the, the, the fact that you saw yourself in that culture and in those ways of interacting. It felt more at home in you than maybe necessarily sort of like the separatist American culture that you sort of were born into here. Yeah. Yeah, I'll add even one more bit. You know, there, because of some of the things I've mentioned, there is a long tradition of, of Western men who are gay or who are, you know, sexually uh, not normative moving to the Arab world, moving to, to Egypt, Alexandria and Cairo specifically, to live there as expats and to be themselves, be how they are in a, in a society that has, like I said, different expectations of what men can be. Now, again, I'm not trying to say that these are um, uh, societies where, you know, like they're not, this is not a libertine society. I'm not trying to say that. It's not like, oh, of course you can have sex with other men. Of course, every, you know, whatever, don't, you know, follow your, your, your yen. No, I'm not trying to say that. But rather because it's homosocial, because the expectation is, of course, you're hanging out with other men. Of course, you're hugging other men. Of course, you're even, you know, sleeping in, in, in you know, in the same apartment with other. That's just the expectation. There's a problem if it's some woman that you're not married to. That's really problematic. So there's this, there was a whole community of expat gay men that I fell into without even knowing it. They knew, you know, I, I was just finding myself, but these older men, you know, in a way were my kind of gunkles, you know, they mm. sort of took me under their wing and with, in a very, I have to say, uh, uh, respectable way, kindly way, mentored me. And they weren't, in, you know, they didn't even come out necessarily. It, you know, it, it, it was a very, um, but they saw me. And understood something about me that I was just beginning to merely understand about myself. And at some point, quite long into, you know, a year into my time there, I was like, oh, all of these expat men that, you know, I've been, you know, going to cocktail parties with or having dinner, with, like, 
oh, they're all gay. <laughs> like a light bulb went off. I was like, oh, okay. You know, um, of course, we have, uh, I think, some stereotypes about older gay men as, mm. uh, you know, and, and, and really, you know, in a way, I think it's probably ageist about uh, straight older men, too. It's like, oh, it's a dirty old man. If there's an older man who's being sexual, he's a dirty old man. Well, whatever those, you know, whatever the source of those stereotypes, I have to say that these, you know, older men who were some cases 10 years older, sometimes 30 years older than me, they were absolutely, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, res respectable, it almost sounds uh, like it's downplaying it, but they, they, they had boundaries. They were, uh, they were not at all trying to seduce me. They were just being, you know, friends in, in the company of, of friends and uh, finding your way in Egypt as an expat is, is a challenge. So we all, we all needed, you know, help and we needed uh, community and, and they provided all of that. So I get, I, I love that idea that you, you were there receiving mentorship, that gunkle energy, as you call yeah. it, the gay uncle energy um, <laughs> to help guide you on your way. What would you say are some of the like major lessons you learned or things you internalized from being in relationship with these men? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, and you know, this is, this is more than 20 years ago, so it's not, and I, I, I think I appreciate what they gave me in a, in a different way today than I did back then. Yeah, of course. Um, and I have to say my, my main emphasis, you know, in, in choosing my, who to socialize with, I was very, very determined to spend my time with Egyptians. You know, um, I made exceptions in a way. I, I was not one of these Americans, and I kind of looked down on them in myself, like these Americans, like there's an, a, a, a university called the AUC, American University in Cairo. Lots of, you know, junior year abroad college students come, and they hang out with each other the whole time. And I mean, you know, they make, make a couple Egyptian friends, but they're basically having an American experience in the middle of Cairo. I was so not interested in that. I was really about connecting with Egyptians of different kinds. But this, you know, because I was teaching English as a foreign language and I was new to that, I had training as a teacher. That was one particular circle of, of you know, professional educators, uh, people who worked in the English as a foreign language kind of community. Uh, who, you know, again, brought me to conferences and invited me to workshops and, and sort of took me under their wing. And um, I think in just their way of being, and they weren't necessarily, some, most of them were not learning Arabic as I was, like that was a high priority for me. They were just being themselves. They were being American. They were being, you know, gay, middle-aged or older men in the middle of uh, the largest city, you know, in the Arab world. I, I think one way I could say a lesson is, um, it's okay just to be how you are. As 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 gung ho as I was on cultural immersion, on learning Arabic, on uh, learning the ways of this then, then very foreign culture to me, I, I appreciated that they were they were okay with not necessarily knowing all of the ins and outs, and not you know not not learning the language particularly well, but just being okay with understanding some things and not understanding other things with uh acculturating in certain ways and not assimilating in other ways so again this sort of spaciousness for how to be how to be myself 
how to be myself as a man, how to be myself as a, an American, as a cultural person, as an educator, as a teacher in a classroom. I just, in a way, was given like permission by their example for kind of, yeah, becoming myself, whatever, whatever that ended up looking like. I love that that was the one of the lessons that you took from it. I think in some ways I I see one of the you you use language in in the work that you do and I want to get to that in a bit, but you used language around like queer superpowers. I think of one of the superpowers of the queer community of people that don't I sort of ident- identify in the traditional um gender binaries or in normative heterosexual relationships. Um, or just find themselves to be queer and different in other ways. I think it's one of our superpowers is, is that we do invite, we have the opportunity to invite others into the space of just being able to be with themselves, be as you are, own the nuances and differences that you are. I think in some ways, the ways that we teach boys to be men kind of blunts the, the uniqueness, the individual, like the, 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 what makes a child really themselves. Yeah. Because they need to be something in order to fit in, belong, and to be a man in this world. And I think that that's why I'm so glad to have someone like you here and to be queer men participating in a conversation like around masculinity. Because I think we have the ability to invite men, even if you aren't gay, even if you're not queer, even if you aren't anything other than a cisgender heterosexual man, we get to invite you into more nuances of yourself and into more okayness with just who you are and where you're at in the world. Yes. Yes. I think that permission is one of the gifts that LGBTQ folks have to give to the wider world. Um, And yeah, those, you know, expat American and British men that I came to know in those, in my early twenties, um, they had left their home culture. They had left the societies that had raised them uh, for, for a number of reasons, of course. But I, I have to, I make up that escaping certain strictures of what it was to be a man in their home cultures was part of the motivation for becoming an expat and living, you know, sort of semi permanently in a very different place where, with kind of a, a middle-class professional income, you could live uh, uh, quite a nice life, but also have distance from social strictures that were operative in that in that place. Yeah, actually, I think about the place, I, another place I lived in the Arab world later in my life, Dubai, which a lot of Arab men, a lot of Egyptians and Lebanese men who wanted to stay living in the Arab world, wanted to be close enough to go home for, you know, mom's birthday or whatever, but were gay. Uh, they went to Dubai. And, and actually, as I think about it, it's not that different from these, uh, you know, expats in Cairo that I met. They were escaping the social strictures of their home society in Lebanon or Syria or Egypt to go to Dubai, this kind of artificial society with 85% expats who live there so that they could just be themselves, be professionals, be dating men, and and not be surveilled by you know the cousins and cousins of cousins and the sort of extended family uh, or, or acquaintances that 
in, back in their home culture where they came from, they would, you know, kind of be enmeshed in. Yeah, there's such an interesting concept that you're talking about that kind of relates to where one of the ways lenses I approach my work with clients is to look at the systems that we're involved all involved in, meaning our families, our works, our friendships, the different systems then that we're engaged with and how that reinforces and keeps us stuck in one identity. And what you're pointing to is, is that many men feel that desire, many people, but many men in this case feel that desire to leave those systems and not have those systems holding you in that identity to allow you to find your own identity and explore and express in, in different ways than you might have previously. Yes. Yeah. And, and as I, you know, think about the work that I do now, uh, helping people grow and develop as, you know, as human beings, what I know is that in our journeys, we need to grow into those strictures. We need to grow into our home culture and understand the rules of our home society. If we're going to become adults, you know, at all. And then there's a, a further stages of adult human development that are available to us where we eventually get distance from and leave behind those strictures as the norms, the taboos, the tracks. We we recognize uh, freedom and agency and an inventiveness about who we can be. Um, and that individuation or that uh, self-actualization, you know, again, it's, these are not stages of development that uh, everyone comes to. Uh, most people don't, in fact, um, but they're available to everybody. And, and so the cultivation of that kind of container and a little bit of heat and, you know, stimulus to prompt some movement, uh, along with the perspective taking and the sort of distance taking to sort of look at ourselves and look at the systems in which we are enmeshed inevitably. Uh, these are some of the ingredients that make possible uh, further development, even in our adulthood. I think it's so true that you, as you were saying, that not everybody or not even most people get to that self-actualization into those higher levels of, of adult development. What are the pathways that you see that are most helpful or supportive of somebody who is interested in moving towards those those higher levels of adult development? Yeah. Well. If we if we just stay with the kind of transition that I, I was maybe mentioning about, like moving out of or or beyond the sort of socialized uh, mind that is the place that we grow into as adults, and, and you know rather taking on more of the agency of of kind of writing our own script, you know, letting our own values, our own personal values be the North Star of our lives. That, which is in, by, by Bob Keegan, one of the researchers in this field of adult development, is called self-authoring. You know, you pick up the pen of your own life and you write your own story rather than let your society, your group, your culture write you, author you. So what, what allows that? I mean, there's, first of all, just the following our, our own passions and interests and developing competency, developing, uh, and this is what, in a way, schools are very good at. I mean, this, this, this transition that I'm talking about is what American society wants of adults. You know, we, we want adults to be self-authoring. We, we, it's in our 
corporate values. It's in our education system. It's in our uh, who we elect. It is the kind of culturally dominant type of person. It's what we think of as a leader. So a leader is someone who is self-authoring. They have their own principles. So the, the harder transition and, and the, the, the rarer one is to move beyond self-authoring, moving beyond this place where, oh, I, I get to follow my own values, but rather start putting into question how my own v- worldview is, my own values, and, and recognize, oh, I actually don't have all the answers either. I actually, yes, I have, I've been following my North Star for a long time, my internal voice. Well, I, I miss plenty of things too. And there's always something to be learned, you know, from others. So I think part of why today I'm, I'm so engaged with this work of uh, growing people is precisely because of this cultural experience is very in, in powerful intercultural experience that I had at a relatively young and very formative time, you know, moving to Cairo when I was 22. Because, I, and it, it was it was crushing in many ways. It was more than I could take in, in many ways. And it, I think it was many years of sort of digesting uh, the sort of mm, relativizing, not only of my home culture, but also of my own values. Uh, it, it was like a, needing to put back together the pieces of myself after this very challenging uh, couple of years uh, living in Cairo at that time. Um, so uh, that's a little bit of a roundabout way to answer, but uh, getting out of our bubbles, getting out of what we take as normal, expected, uh, taken for granted, uh, stepping into another culture and not being on the tour bus, but rather uh, really having conversation with uh, people about their way of, of looking at the world. This is one uh, kind of stimulus. Um, but then there's the perspective taking, the, the, the stepping back and the questioning. And, re, you know, the whole mindfulness movement, I think, is already uh, in, this, in this vein. Uh, journaling, writing, you know, about experiences and really staying with our experiences enough to look at them from multiple perspectives. It takes time. It takes uh, slowing down. It's countercultural to be pausing and uh, questioning in, in our very fast-paced, very action-oriented, results, outcome-oriented, you know, culture. Uh, but those are some of the, the pathways. I, 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 you know, I, I'm very much a community uh, organizer in the sense for, for leadership development. I mean, the, 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 the flagship program of Flourishing Gaze is a cohort-based program because of the power of community community of practice, the power of seeing in another person when you drop your armor and you get real and vulnerable, seeing yourself in them and letting them see themselves in you. So I think intimate relationships where there is uh, real safety is another privileged place for growth, for learning, for development. I appreciate you bringing all this stuff up. It feels so true to me that these are such powerful access points. And I and I agree that I think that it is counterculture to, especially for men, to slow down, to look at perspective, other perspectives other than their own, to sit with an experience and see how it made you feel, how it, what it brought up in you, all of those things. We don't teach boys who are becoming men those skills. We don't really value that in the in men. 
And so, as at least in the U.S. culture. And so I think there are some steps to teaching that. And I love that your program offers like a cohort-based thing where people get to do that in real time. Because you're right, there is something that happens in that intimate space that develops you as a person, that helps you start to learn how to self-author in new ways. So let's hear more about Flourishing Gaze and what, uh, what, the, what you're offering there and what, what, what it's all about. Sure. And yeah, I mean, one thing that comes up in just what we were just talking about is uh, how vibrant the work of diversity, equity and inclusion is today in America, partly as we wrestle with our own uh, history of systemic racism and as it's coming up with these ongoing uh, slaughterings of, of, of black men, black boys, often by police. But in the diversity of America, in these subcultures, like the little subculture that I, you know, grew up in, in you know, the sort of Catholic uh, world of Omaha, in the Italian American community, as we have conversations across these communities, just in in our in this country, there is this this possibility of distance, perspective taking, learning. Um, and I think actually, if I can be very hopeful for a few moments, some of the the work that we as a, an American society are doing right now is precisely in relativizing uh, a certain kind of taken for granted set of values that we have been taught to believe for such a long time were enough, were solid, were unquestionable. And and these values were written by by white men, um, and so the diversity and inclusion work, which I am also involved in, that is part of flourishing gaze. I help organizations, uh, you know, in those journeys of of learning that are uh, uh, towards inclusive leadership. Um, I think we as a society are actually beginning to move beyond a, a, a simply self authoring uh, uh, sort of ideal to something. Further, I mean, this. I think in uh, 10, 20 years ago, the sort of uh, political correctness was a certain earlier version of this, which, which is now passe. But um, we're we're moving, we're moving and in, in evolving. And uh, and I think um, what you're doing uh, and, and really imagining and and questioning, inquiring into what is the new masculinities or what are the new masculinities that is vital. I think healing gender is vital to this emergence, which is uh, possible and is happening. And that's, yeah, really some of the deep uh, motivation for, for my work, which is focused, um, aside from the corporate stuff, uh, on individuals who are highly accomplished. They've achieved a lot. Uh, and yeah, maybe they've, they, maybe they've been quite self-authored for quite some time. And, and uh, you know, they've risen to the, to, to, quite high places in their professions, whatever they are. They're men, they're, they're gay, bi, queer, or trans, but they've, you know, they've achieved this kind of prefabricated mold for what success is supposed to be. And they're beginning to notice they yearn for more, that, that that's not enough, that they actually have other dreams, other imaginings that are, yes, countercultural, that maybe are kind of just glimmers inside the depth of themselves when they do slow down. And they almost forgot how to chase their dreams. 
they almost, you know, that dream catcher that, you know, in Native American cultures, mm-hmm. like, you know, they kind of put over the bed that's like a net to kind of hold and catch a few dreams. Well, I think in a way, uh, cultivating queer flourishing, queer leadership, helping, helping gay, bi, queer, and trans men to grow into their own dream man, to be the man of their dreams. I think that's part of the dream catching that, that we uh, desperately need. And as we maybe were talking about earlier, straight folks need queer folks to be weird and wonderful so that straight folks can be weird and wonderful too. (laughs) (laughs) It goes back to that permission element you were talking about before of if if you can see someone else being able to do it, then I, oh, maybe I can do it too. Yes. 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 We all deserve permission to be ourselves as fully as we can possibly muster. Yeah. I I so appreciate the actual moment of hopefulness that you shared because we are working through some really intense shadow stuff. We're ta- we're having really divisive conversations. We're addressing some of the darkness that's been there that we haven't been really willing to address. And you and I are recording this episode as sort of like we're in the liminal space between the the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial with George Floyd's murder, and so. I sort of, I love, I'm so grateful that you brought up that piece of that we are looking at these things and that the hope is that there is possibility for some new ways of looking at ourselves, at our society, at our culture, at what we are doing to each other, what we're doing to this planet, what we're doing to ourselves. And I appreciate you were talking about in the flourishing gaze where you're working with men who have reached a certain level of sort of metric of success that does fall into sort of the current cultural model of success. It's capitalistic, it's um, leading organizations, it's having vision, creating something oftentimes. And even in those of us who have had to sort of become self-authoring, we can still be playing into this script that we were given to us about what versions of success we need to be reaching for. And what I heard you saying was, is there often people hit that level of success and there's still a limitation that they feel. They're still not fully formed in that limited metric of success. Yeah. If they slow down and look at themselves, of course, they're going to notice limitations. And, and, and it is, there's a lot of cultural and societal pressure to stay just there. Like, oh, you're executive vice president, go for CEO, you know, keep going and be the, be the same person that you're being and just make more money or get a higher position. And this move beyond self-authoring to, to stages like they're called in some ways redefining or self-transforming. Um, it's actually to throw into question the whole structure that you've become so successful at Mm. so you know most people don't go there (laughs) no (laughs) why would they right um and let me just say that the shadow you brought up shadow material i mean that which we are uh, i think in confronting anti-black racism in particular uh and and in different ways um you know anti-asian uh racism in this country by looking at that shadow material that we collectively hold um we are doing some important work on our let's say uh collective psyche Hmm. well shadow work is also a privileged pathway to the higher reaches of human development on the on the so that's we're talking on the macro scale when we're talking about um the the derek chauvin george floyd uh, incident um 
part of you know like the shadow work that we might look at as we experience these these events that most of us of course were not personally present to is not only to identify with George Floyd as he called for his mama said he can't breathe cried with a, literally a knee on his neck but also to identify with the law and order authority whose knee is pressing down on that man's neck we are we are both Derek Chauvin and George Floyd if if we're going to really see ourselves we we must recognize that we're not just the the guileless victim of power of oppression we all whatever our skin color whatever our sexual orientation whatever privileges we also, we enjoy in whatever other parts of our life we are both and that's part of the countercultural uh um perspective of really changing positions really holding multiple perspectives seeing the seeing the murderer inside ourselves seeing that darkness as as terrifying as it is to to recognize um that's some of the very personal work that um makes possible a, a, a sort of expansion a personal expansion a, a growing a learning that 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 goes beyond this uh sort of culturally uh, approved uh, self-authoring stage that we were we were talking about wow that's really powerful the way you shared that and i really appreciate your perspective on that um i'm just sitting with the power of it because it hearing your reflection on that uh, it does offer a new way of looking at this there is a reason why our culture is captivated right now on this trial this is this isn't the first black man who's been killed by the police um and yet this one has got our attention um and there's a reason and it's hard to watch and it's hard to sit through the discomfort of what's going to happen it's hard to watch people struggling to see the videotape over and over and over again and i think what you're offering is where some of the work is for a lot of us which is to even the wokest of woke people is to start looking at where we where we are in that in what we watched where am i in that where am i that police officer where am i that person with a knee on my neck where am i where have I agreed to this culture? Where am I participating in it? Where am I in that? Because that's how real expansion happens um, yes. beyond, as you were saying, sort of the new focus self-authoring place that we've allowed ourselves to be in. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, the Hero's Journey program that I create for uh, these highly accomplished men in the LGBTQ community opens space for them to trade perspectives with one another for them to dream their dream of who to be come next. Um, it, it offers some stimulus, you know, some provocation even, uh, some encouragement and, and uh, uh, you know, advocacy for them to grow uh, and stretch. Uh, 
but above all, it's a, a safe space to for, where they can see one another and, and practice letting themselves be seen uh, vulnerably, intimately, and offering mutual support with one another. So, you know, I call it hero's journey, uh, not hero apostrophe s, but heroes in the plural because we we journey together. Heroes journey together, and this kind of mythopoetic archetype of you know, going on a journey uh, uh, that ultimately is a transformative one, like, you know, in the Odyssey or in the Aeneid or or in the Hobbit, uh, you know, uh, finding out things about yourself you didn't know except from going through the journey or except from what, what happened to you when confronted with that particular demon. Um, this is this is the journey of, of, of human uh, expansion that in a way we've been passing down wisdom generation to generation for the from the ages and you know with the kind of scientific research into this uh, uh personal transformation that is has been happening in the last decades no longer is is this the the, the realm of the woo-woo or or just the poet that can be perhaps dismissed by you know the enlightenment mind the the, the sort of uh science and engineering mind but actually we we now understand something about these changes of mindset changes of consciousness and very specifically what what can uh, make possible this kind of of growth yeah it's so interesting how when we think of the odyssey the iliad the hobbit we focus so much of the time we can get really focused on that one hero and the, the ultimate task that needs to be accomplished by the end of it and yet the richness and the majority, like if you just look at The Hobbit, like the r- richness is the storyline throughout the the fellowship of the ring, the, the, the people that are there with him and yeah. the trials and the ups and downs and the relationships and the intimacy and the brotherhood and the sisterhood. And the, there, that's where the whole story is. It's not at the end where <laughs> it's just not at the end of the story. Yes. And so it's so interesting. I, I love this that you call it the heroes without the apostrophe that it's we're doing this together because I think that's such an important thing for men of all different uh, types to experience is that intimacy and seeing each other and being seen by each other. I think there's such a lack of that in our culture. You were talking about the Arab world where men spend so much time with each other talking and socializing. How rarely do most of us men get to have that? Do yeah. we get to be seen beyond, I think, for those of us that do have romantic and sexual relationships with other men, we do get some pockets of that here and there. But how rarely do we actually get to really see and be seen by a group of men and uh, feel safe in doing that? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, yes, you know, gay men who have, you know, let's say lots and lots of other friends who are gay men. I mean, there's some gay men who all of their friends are straight women, but for 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 gay men who really are having a homosocial uh, life, and in here in Manhattan, uh, if you can hear the sirens, like there's there are plenty of plenty of opportunities for that. But what I have come to know through my work with flourishing gays, what I've come to know through my work with flourishing gays is that even in gay male culture, although there's plenty of of sexual permission to you know to be sexually intimate with other men and even ones that you're just meeting or hardly know and to be vulnerable physically in those ways 
gay men have uh, as many challenges finding non-sexual intimacy and, 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 and emotional vulnerability with one another as straight men. You know, in, in, as I've opened up spaces for gay men, queer men to connect with one another deeply and non-sexually, I, I just keep hearing again and again from, you know, my participants, how rare, how rare it is. And, and, all, and by the way, no alcohol involved either. That's a game changer because what <laughs> gay space is there without alcohol? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we're all desperate for intimacy. We're all desperate to be seen and, and we all need it. Like we need, like a, like a flower needs water and, and sun. There's a certain starvation, I think, that is happening, and 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 that, yeah, we it's it's incumbent on all of us to uh, connect deeply uh, for for our own good and for the good of of greater the greater world. Starvation is the perfect word that I notice in my work with men too. Is there is a starvation regardless of how you identify as a man, there is a starvation for that intimacy and for that kind of connection, and. Very rarely do most of us feel safe to be in that space. Yeah. And I think it's time to start questioning what that's about and to start really looking at why don't we feel safe with each other? Yeah. Why, why don't, when you ask women in the world, why don't they feel safe in a room full of men? Why don't queer people feel safe? Why don't men of color feel safe? Like, why is it that we all have this shared experience of not really feeling safe with each other? <laughs> And yet are craving and starving for that connection and intimacy. Yes. Well, I'm really curious, is there anything else that feels important to you about to share about the work you're doing in the world, either through Flourishing Gaze or any of your other work? Well, I've begun to create a, a Flourishing Gaze space that is open to all. Uh, it's called The Flourish. Um, and it happens around once a month. And it's just an hour. Uh, it's built on the conviction that queer flourishing benefits everyone. And while we, you know, focus on some aspect of, you know, this, well, the learning that I've been doing in, in paying attention to, 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 to queer development um, through some, you know, questions and, you know, a little bit of, of reflection, everybody coming, you know, men, women, everyone in between, straight allies, every, you know, and professionals like professional development managers, human resource managers, you know, uh, coaches, therapists, um, who professionally support uh, flourishing. Uh, everyone shows up uh, to the degree they want to uh, looking at themselves and, and wondering what can be learned from paying attention to career flourishing, what can be gained. Um, so, on, on my website, flourishinggaze.com, there's a uh, uh, a link always for The Flourish. And you can kind of see when the next one is and, and, and register there. And I'm, I'm really uh, eager to, to welcome anyone who's interested in, um, you know, any of the themes that you've been talking about uh, in the masculinities or um, what our conversation has covered today um, would, would really uh, welcome. Um, folks stepping into that flourishing space.
queer flourishing benefits everyone. I think that's such a, a new perspective that I don't know that many people have really given them chance, themselves a chance to sit with. Are there any like quick sort of nuggets that you can, you can come up with for why you think, why you believe or why you operate under that, that hypothesis that queer flourishing benefits everyone? Well, you know, in some ways I think American society already knows this, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, American society loves its drag queens, uh-huh. you know, it's, it's, it's strange, you know, folks who are gender bending, um, we we delight in the weirdness um we you know and 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 you know in other ways uh, i mentioned in passing how many straight women and gay men uh have have real lovely safe friendships mm. right um thank god for for the gay men who can be and, and the straight women who can be friends i mean Thank God that they can find in each other a kind of uh, compatibility and, and that is um, not fraught mm-hmm. by gender politics in, in the same ways that other kinds of friendships uh, uh, can be. Um, so I think we know this already. And, I, and, and by the way, American society is not unique in, 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 in appreciating uh, uh, gays or queer culture. but. Um, I don't think we make it explicit. And I think that's some of the newness of what I'm doing uh, at the intersection of LGBTQ lived experience and leadership development, um, putting a stake in the ground and saying, yeah, not just for us gays do we need to grow into leaders, but you straight folks, you benefit from our becoming ourselves in all of our, our faggotry and all of our butchness and all of our gender non-conforming, all of the weird kind of wonderful panoply of ways that LGBTQ folks show up for themselves when they uh, get permission from inside or from each other or just violate and transgress the rules to be themselves wildly, vitally, flamboyantly. It gives, yeah, this, this, I mean, theme that you and I, Travis, have been talking about, it gives all of us permission to be human more fully. Well, thank you for putting your stake in the ground so firmly, because in, in hearing you say that last bit, for me, it reinvigorates the permission I get to give myself of being a, a gay man that's holding space for a conversation around masculinity and manhood mm-hmm. in so many ways. I do think I have a perspective that's worth offering. I do believe that that's why I bring on a lot of queer men onto this podcast is because I do believe that we haven't had a voice at the table um, around this conversation in a mainstream kind of way. And I do think we have a perspective and, and permission to give for people to find more of themselves as whole beings rather than this pushed off version they've designed of themselves. And so I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate the work you're doing because I do I completely agree with you, I guess is what I mean, is it does benefit everyone and help uh, like really creating safe spaces for gay men, trans men, bi men, queer men to, to flourish, I think really does do a benefit to our culture for sure. Yes. Thank you.
So, if you were going to leave the listeners with one piece of advice, whether they're gay, bi, queer, trans, heterosexual, cisgender, whatever, however they identify, what is that piece of advice you would leave them with? I'd say get curious about the rules that you've been living by and restricted yourself to for so long. Get curious about the armor that you wear to protect yourself from expanding and tell on yourself. Start noting it to yourself, to others, write it down, write about it. Tell on yourself when you see your guardedness and your rule following so that you can begin to have some greater permission. Ooh, tell on yourself that I love how like risky that can feel to a lot of people, um, especially I think for men to, we're supposed to show strength and, and invulnerability and, and telling on yourself requires a level of vulnerability. So yeah. I love that invitation. Thank you. You're welcome. If people want to find out more about you, Flourishing Gays, the work you're doing in the world, how might they be able to find that? Well, besides uh, flourishinggays.com, which is the website, on Instagram, it's also Flourishing Gays. Uh, the same on Facebook, Flourishing Gays. The same on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. So, again, uh, I really welcome folks to come to The Flourish. Uh, open up yourself to some queer flourishing. Who knows what will happen? Who knows what will happen? I, I, I hope that I hope that people have really stayed tuned to our conversation because I do think just in two queer men showing up and having this conversation, I think there are a lot of things that people can gain. And uh, I, I, I so appreciate the work you're doing in the world to create more safe spaces for queer people to flourish and to continue drawing the connection to how that benefits everyone because that is how we create change. That's how we expand. That's how we move from that me-centered self-authoring into those next iterations of ourselves and those next expanded developmental stages. So thank you so much for the work you're doing in the world. Thank you, Travis. Thank you for what you're doing. I'm really glad to be part of it. If people want to get in contact with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can follow me on Instagram at travers 3 or you can email me directly at travisstock03 at gmail.com. If you're interested in supporting the work of the, the New Masculine, I'm also on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the new masculine. If you want to become a contributor, help me continue the mission of this podcast, please feel free to go there and become a contributor. It's been a pleasure to have you, Dominic. I really appreciate all that you've brought. And until our next episode, thanks everyone.